0: Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. We are a film criticism show and we'll be talking to you about cinema until 8pm. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined by Josh Nelson and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Hello. Good evening. Now on tonight's show, we're carrying on from our review last week of the 1979 film Scum, which was set in a British reform school. We've got a trio of films this week that... In various ways, they all look at group dynamics and the way individuals choose to either identify as belonging to the crowd or resist assimilation. We're going to start by looking at the latest in the Marvel Cinematic Universe franchise with Avengers Age of Ultron. With the arrival of a new threat, the group cohesion becomes increasingly strained. Then in the middle of the show, we're going to look at a film that's getting a limited series of screenings over the coming weekends. It's the Ukrainian film, The Tribe. It's about a gang of, I guess they're teenage criminals who operate from within a boarding school for the deaf. The characters only communicate in sign language and the film provides no subtitles. And finally, a recent home entertainment release, More Badly Behaved Boys, this time with The Riot Club, a film about the members of an exclusive and hedonistic club at Oxford University, whose membership consists of extremely privileged young male students. But first, I think we're going to we'll start light, get incredibly dark, and then only slightly <laughs> dark. Let's start light with Avengers Age of Ultron. Yes, it's fair to say this isn't as hard-hitting as the tribe. So
1: Avengers Age of Ultron, this is writer-director Joss Whedon's follow-up to the box office busting the Avengers, which was 2012. And the first Avengers was the the first of the culmination narratives that brought together the strands and the characters from the earlier Marvel franchises, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, and characters who, who we'd seen within those films, such as Black Widow, Hawkeye and the Hulk, who I think is by far the most deserving of of his own franchise, particularly in the guise of Mark Ruffalo but maybe I can get back to my Hulk gush fest later. So this film is the second culmination narrative tying up some of the threads from the second and third round of those same Marvel franchises and it also in some ways looks forward to the next round and and I'm sure we've heard this before but Marvel have planned out these various franchises for the next 20 odd films and and who knows how many decades to come. The, The key conflict in the first film was Loki who wanted to dominate the earth Uh, The big bad in this film, to borrow a Buffy term, is Ultron, a cybernetic organism voiced by James Spader who envisions peace on Earth in the form of the destruction of mankind, giving rise to an evolved form of of humanity which are all machines, basically. So again, the the Avengers have to assemble to take down this threat. Although I guess an interesting point of distinction in this one is that this time the threat is of their own making. We can get back to why that is. Look, I've seen this film twice now. Uh, The first time... I was a little underwhelmed and I was far more forgiving on a second viewing but I can see that the mechanics of what Whedon was trying to do on a second viewing and I think probably the best way to describe this film is it's a Frankensteinian creation in a number of ways, not just in terms of its themes which are quite overt but also in terms of its construction. I mean thematically you have the Frankensteinian connection because the two scientists here in Tony Stark and Bruce Banner create Ultron in an attempt to create an AI which will um, protect Earth from from intergalactic invaders like we saw in the first one. And, of course, as it always does when you create AI, it goes badly and it turns on the people who created it. But I think perhaps more interestingly for me in in terms of this film is just how much this film feels like a Frankensteinian pastiche of a narrative where it's trying to do so much. And I think I was far more forgiving to what Whedon had to contend with on an industrial level in the sense that this film feels like it's trying to tie off all the threads from the previous round of, of Marvel films it also is trying to lead into the next series of Avengers slash Marvel franchises and somewhere in between these competing forces it's trying to create a narrative on its own in terms of the Ultron figure and I think in a sense he's got too many balls in the air to juggle coherently and it doesn't work as, as consistently or as coherently as the, the first one does because not only do we have the the big bad Ultron figure but we've got the introduction of two more villain potentially in the enhanced a la mutants borrowed from Fox, these are X-Men in the form of Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch who are sort of in there as well and also in terms of Whedon's style, I think what is more evident in this, this time around than was in the first one is just how he struggles with combining the intimate dramatic settings that is more part and parcel of his TV work in those ensemble pieces, the very much, the in this this case, a condensed second act when all the characters are removed to a homestead and and we get the kind of the emotional backstory, and then combining that with the the grand set pieces, which, like in the first one, to a degree feel quite bloated in many ways here. And I think this film is almost the best and the worst of, of what we've seen in terms of Marvel. The opening scene, the CGI, the visual effects in the opening scene, I thought awful, there's no sense of the physicality of the characters in that opening set piece and we're thrust straight into the action, unlike the first one, which is a sort of a slow build and yet there are moments within the carnage porn that happens throughout this film where I think there's some extraordinary visual effects works, particularly in terms of Hulk I think they've finally nailed that character and, and you know, I think that part of that is Ruffalo sells the distinction between himself and the the other character but look some of the other aspect that I sort of want to flag to to maybe come back to um, that felt almost like narrative cheats in a way that I think led to my feeling a little disappointed with this one around is things like the not only do we get one but two deus ex Machina's at the end of this narrative where suddenly oh by the way this just turns up or let's just create this new character towards the end which suddenly resolves things and I just felt a little cheated by that it didn't feel like genuine coherent storytelling. Quickly I want to flag issues of gender I want to come back to that. The other one is cultural politics because unlike the first one which takes place in New York and which I really have no problem about American superheroes fighting on their home turf, here we have two large scale battles, one which takes place in Africa and one which takes place in, I think it's supposed to be Eastern Europe and it may be a fictional town and I just felt a little bit icky about that and I think that's another point of distinction between the first film and the follow up.
0: There's something about the disposable location feel of those two big set pieces, especially the African one, which I thought was entirely redundant to the story. Uh didn't need to be there at all. It felt like a really strange segue to have another disaster porn moment. Even though it features the Hulk, who I agree with you, is the most interesting character. We don't get enough of him to really latch on. I think you're right. This feels like housekeeping. This feels like... Remember that some of the later Harry Potter films? sort of Somewhere between 5, 6 and 7? It just felt like we were ticking the boxes to get to the big finale. Um, I know a lot of fans will disagree with me on that, but it, yeah, it just felt like um, they were going through the motions. And I heard that apparently the original cut of this was a lot lot longer it was a much longer script and it just got reined in it feels like something that should have been a series on television to kind of explore all the dynamics and to be a bit more sparing with the action instead it's been edited into this one colossal film and yeah it is all a bit too busy um i I can't disagree with anything that you 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 said you said about it I, i did enjoy it but i felt it was lacking some of the the magic from the other films the spectacle didn't do much for me and i missed some of the humor uh and the warmth that had crept into the other films which is especially disappointing since Whedon does that sort of thing so well most most of the time. Um yeah look in terms of what you raised, as like I said, that, that idea of disposable locations is a bit on the nose. Um, one of the best characters to emerge from this franchise has been the Scarlett Johansson character, um, Black Widow. Just seeing her relegated to a kind of almost kind of giggly love interest. Um, really disappointing. I don't it's think
2: there's an almost there. I think that you think that's it was yeah. just yeah. straight out.
0: She was so good in the last Captain America film. like She stole that film. Um, and I mentioned this when I reviewed the, 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 the film on The Breakfasters. It's infuriating that she is a character who has not had her own film. You know? Yeah, I agree. Uh, And I think that's, that is just really unfair and just kind of reeks of what is wrong with kind of geek culture at the moment the male centricity of it all and you know and as a bloke i just find it i find that boring and i find it unfair and unsatisfying and non-representative i think it's, it's it's a real shame um I don't know. I'm really curious Alex to <laughs> know what you think because you and you haven't been invested in these films like we have. In fact I think this is only the second one in the entire franchise you've I'm, seen.
2: I'm one of the three people left <laughs> on the planet that, that these films are pretty much completely new to. I, I saw the first Iron Man film. Yep. Um and then I saw this. And it's very, very strange. It hasn't been a not an issue of snobbery or anything like that. It's just I've had other things to watch. These haven't really interested me that much. And there's other things to watch. It's just not already fallen on my radar. Um, so watching this film and not really knowing the mythology is a bewildering and hilarious experience. Um, very much a degree of the emperor wears no clothes. It it didn't make any sense to me. I didn't understand the mythology or its internal symbolism. Um, but I'm not sure whether I felt that, the, just hearing you guys talk about it, I'm not really sure whether the film was that, invested in in deep meaning i i don't think that that's the purpose of these films so it, it's really interesting actually to come to this film from that perspective because the things that i did have reactions to were, were quite glaring and they almost floated above the surface of its internal logic if that makes sense
0: very much so. Um,
2: so i mean i really liked elizabeth olsen she was one of the first things that really grabbed me about this film i I have to confess, I pretty much made a decision to myself after um, Martha Marcy May Marlene from 2011 that I would love everything that this woman does. And this was a bit. She was a great character, and she did a. She had you know, it was a wonderful performance. It was very kind of 90s. I think she's juggling plasma balls at one point. It's all a bit in space. I, I don't know. Um, (laughs) That's great. It's Elizabeth Olsen. I'm in. Like, I'm in. I I don't care what she's in. I will watch it.
0: She's very, very good.
2: Unfortunately, I feel I can't really be so enthusiastic about Scarlett Johansson's character. I had some... um I was quite shocked. There was actually some moments in this film that I was quite shocked at at the end. This isn't really a spoiler, but um, one of her male colleagues in the workplace makes a a joke to her, a sexually inappropriate joke about Hulk's doodle. Can you say doodle on radio? (laughs) Oh, I just did. I feel so punk rock. He makes a joke about uh, Hulk's doodle. And I, I cannot for the life of me remember what her reaction was, whether she said something, whether it was an eye roll or a pout. I would need to see the film again to... Remember, but I know that she didn't smack him in the mouth, which is what she should have done, and then called a lawyer f- because this is workplace harassment. Um, and all I could think was, you know, you went to Russian Ninja Suspiria Junior High. You were trained better than this girl. You've got the cat suit. We expect more from you. And it, it didn't happen. Um, and so I was assuming that that's what the next film is, is, is a kind of legal <laughs> film where she hooks up with Harvey Birdman and they sue the rest <laughs> of the Avengers for, for sexual harassment in the workplace. It was completely out of control.
1: I would watch that film. Yeah, me I'm, too. I'm, Can James Spader come back in the guise of a lawyer, a humanoid <laughs> lawyer?
2: <laughs> I'm kick-starting it in my mind right now. But um, I think I think the point
1: you raise there is, is really important in terms of Scarlett Johansson. That's the it that comes back to this inconsistency because we get some moments where we see the spark that, like you mentioned, Thomas, that we saw in Winter Soldier, the Captain America one, the flirtiness. There's a bar moment where she's flirting with Ruffalo, and there are sparks there. Mm. And then later on, it's just kind of Mills and Boone esque, you know, romance. And her character isn't nailed at all. And she, she, you're right. I think she should have smacked Tony Stark in the mouth or given
2: some, you know, this is not cool. Yeah, you should not say that to me because. "'I am your colleague and another human being. "'So shush, shush your lips up, Tony Stark.'" That's what I would have said. And, and then I would have smacked him in the mouth. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but there's that inconsistency across the whole board. And I, and I think in some ways, you know, it's an impossible task that Whedon's been given. Like, I want to be the Whedon apologist in, in some ways <laughs> because I am a Whedon fan. I mean, I'm not a, um, I'm not one of these Whedon fans who thinks the sun shines out of his ass for everything. But I do think that this is an impossible task. And I mm. think maybe a Cynical Me wants to say that he's done this film to try and get a foot into the film industry because of the success or not success that he's had recently in, in terms of television. But I think... He his style struggles here because he is trademark isn't big budget set a big blockbuster set pieces. I mean, even with Firefly, that wasn't the trademark of that show. It was kind of small character ensemble with witty humour, and everything feels like he's had to kind of concede on everything. Like it's, it's almost as if they've said, OK, we'll give you that truncated second act at the homestead, but in response we're going to want 17 massive set pieces. And even in that, there's the only kind of the occasional witticism, like Hawkeye gets a throwaway line or someone else gets a throwaway line. And that's not to say that there aren't moments in those sequences that I didn't think really sparked, Elizabeth Olsen kills it. I mean, he still manages to bring a moment of real powerful emotional gravitas towards the end of that very long sequence above the floating European asteroid city. But again, it feels like there are moments as opposed to something which is consistent across the whole narrative.
0: It certainly does have its moments. There's a scene where a whole bunch of characters suffer from a hallucination where they regress to this version of their past and they're confronted with sort of troubling figures or incidents from their past. And that's beautifully handled. But again, it's because it's character based. I mean, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of special effects in play for this sequence, but it's about the inner psychology of these characters, and that's Whedon's strength, and I, I really enjoyed that moment. I think my biggest disappointment was they turned the intellectuals into the villains of, of the group. That in, um, in, the, in, in in the first Avengers, Whedon privileged Banner and Stark so much as the witty, smart guys who came up with the answers, while Captain America and Thor were just kind of the, 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 the lovable brutes. And he seemed to have gone 180 on this, and I think it's... Um, it, yeah, you know, there's a lot to explore with that idea of meddling with nature and preemptively trying to stop a war, which I think is a line in the film. But I felt really sad that the kind of the fallen Avenger types were the ones who were using intelligence.
2: As somebody totally new to this world, um, I mean, the, the difference between those male characters really stood out. Hulk, I agree with you. Just, I just thought he was fantastic. He was absolutely the highlight of this film for me. He he's just surrounded by these dude bros, and. And he's this quite literally inflated, hyperactive masculinity that is just yearning not just for for softness in his life through this romantic plotline, but also for a degree of the feminine to himself. This the, this, the struggle of the masculine that he's mm. suffering is so profound, and so subtle, and so kind, and so smart. And there's just all these dude bros around him. And it's it's. I found that con- contrast so shocking. Like, really... I mean, my my, my review of um, Age of Ultron is that I really need to go and see all the Hulk movies, even if they're garbage, because I think he was, by a long shot, the most interesting thing going on in this film.
1: Yeah, look, I don't think Wheaton is a political conservative. I don't, I don't think you could mount a, a case that would say no, that. No way, no. But the problem is with this film is he doesn't have a government figurehead or a corporate figurehead, which is his sort of two go-to people to critique. And I think in the absence of that, making like you said banner and stark that almost the bad guys doesn't really kind of come off and it lacks that political edge
2: in terms of politics i would briefly say that for somebody who is on the outside again on the outside of this world and who is to be honest struggling a little bit with assumptions are superhero movies crypto fascist i could have done without the end credits being slow motion pans across marble sculptures oh, the it was Riefen all a lenny style, clothes and clothes and credits, and style yeah. wasn't it <laughs>
0: Avengers: Age of Ultron. In case you missed it, is the film we're talking about here on Plato's Cave. This is three triple R. Triple R. Not for everyone. For anyone. We're now going to take a look at a film that's. It's only getting four screenings in Melbourne, two this coming weekend and two the weekend after that at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. It's a film called The Tribe. Alex, tell us all about this.
2: All right, hold on to your hats, people. Um, the Tribe is the debut film for Miroslav Slabopish, Slaboshpitsky. Oh, I knew I'd get his name wrong. That's terrible.
0: Hey, Miroslav slaughtering names is my domain, thank you.
2: <laughs> Slaboshpitsky. Um, it was filmed in Kiev in 2013. This is his first film. I believe he'd made some shorts previously, but this is his first feature film. The film follows Sergey, played by Grigory Fesenko, as he arrives at a boarding school for deaf young people. He gets caught up with a vicious organised crime gang uh, with some of the other students in it, Um on his arrival and through a gruelling initiation process he comes on board as a key player in their illegal undertakings. Now their shenanigans include theft, intimidation and most centrally to the plot, running a small but seemingly lucrative prostitution business pimping out two fellow female students. Sergei develops a relationship with one of the girls triggering a series of events that these already pretty grim circumstances might suggest is far from rosy now as the setting of this film perhaps implies the dialogue in the tribe is entirely communicated through sign language um, there are no subtitles and almost no verbal utterances at all except i believe for one very memorable occasion in the film that um you cannot be prepared for there there is a scene in this film you do where one of the characters makes a sound yeah, yeah. that i you can never be braced for that sequence i think is fair to say i know that i certainly was not prepared for what Happened in front of my poor eyes. Um, if this sounds confronting, it's it's very much meant to be. Um have you guys seen any films that are all sign language before?
0: Never. No? No, not to my knowledge.
2: The only one that I'd seen is a 1975 film called Deafula. Have you ever heard of this? Goodness, there's no. There's a clip of it on um, on YouTube and Vimeo, Deafula. Um, this is
0: a Deaf Dracula? Deaf
2: Dracula oh, from yes. 1975. That,
0: that's where my mind went. That's yeah, true. It's, okay.
2: um, it's a really interesting film, but the difference, I mean, there's a lot of differences, I think, between Deafula, as the title might imply, and The Tribe, Um Obviously, quite tonally different. But Defula also has uh, spoken, so people are signing. But there's also a spoken um, translation above. That doesn't happen in the tribe. What we really have to to guide us through what's happening is just the choreography of the hands, assuming that we're not able to understand what the actual sign language. Um, it's an interesting film to think about in terms of purely formal construction, I would need to see it again and I would need to watch it a lot more closely. But if I'm not mistaken, I don't think if there's any at all or very little uh, close-ups
0: Yeah, I know and, and
2: no shot reverse shots, nope. or again, very very little. It's, it's nearly Remarkable. all long
0: takes medium shots.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's an incredible, it sounds like a kind of technical observation, but when you watch a film that denies you those things as well as denying you uh, spoken language or, or dialogue that you can understand it's a remarkable experience it does fascinating things um, it, it it excludes you in a really fundamental way in a really technical way that, that is almost very difficult to uh, cognitively process what it's doing um, It's almost like the film is saying to you, oh, you don't know what's going on? Well, well, screw you. Learn sign language. This is your problem. I mean, I felt bad that I didn't know sign language, so I couldn't follow what was going on. I felt really excluded from a lot of the action of the film. Yet at the same time, that was in tension with the very deep impact that this movie had on me. Um, It's a shocking film in many respects and quite a moving film in many respects. Um, It's... Not, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything like it. It's, it's early days yet. I know it's only April, but so far this is without question the best film I've seen this year.
0: I, I loved it as well, and I found it a really interesting film to watch purely from a formal point of view, as you were discussing. I actually found it bizarrely very inclusive i i didn't feel excluded from it there were some moments where i wasn't too sure what was going on but then that information was communicated to me in a way that i didn't feel was frustrating i um and i suspect i mean i think those long takes are so beautifully choreographed and they look amazing it's not shaky cam either it's it's a really steady controlled camera so when it's still it's still when it's moving it's that very tranquil kind of yeah, tracking shots across the action in a way that's often quite unnerving. Um, And, you know, it rests on these beautiful frames. And I think a lot of the medium shots were there through necessity, but also because the characters are communicating with their entire bodies. So, of course, the hands are in play, but, you know, their their arms and their shoulders and their facial expressions and and their upper body and even sometimes, you know, the, the torso and the legs. It's almost like watching... Dance in a way. and I,
2: I, Choreographic is the word that I kept coming back to as well. Yeah.
0: And I found it bizarrely liberating to kind of have scenes that conveyed what was going on without the need for tedious dialogue. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll give you a superficial example. There's a scene early in the film where our young hero gets shown to his room and the other boys who live in that room turf him out, right? They're basically like, you're an outsider, we don't want anything to do with you, and they chuck him out in the corridor. That, is, that dynamic, that power relationship is all communicated perfectly through action. You didn't need... That tedious dialogue where they come in and say, "Who are you? You're an impostor." But I've been told I can stay in here. No, get out. Um, I'm sure that but they
2: were having that it, dialogue,
0: but they were doing that dialogue. But we didn't need it. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. I, I found myself really drawn into this film. I found it quite uh, dreamlike. Uh, it's certainly extremely confronting. And um, let's keep moving because there, there, there are certainly issues there to, to bring up about what we see on screen why we see some things and why some scenes go on for a very difficult amount of time. Yeah, this film was hard work. Um, It's hard to criticise a film
1: that prompts so much investigation on the part of the viewer. I found... I was considering my own relationship to how I watch film more than I was at, at various points in this film to what was actually going on on screen. Like the frustration that I sensed early on in trying to get into or get past the fact that I wasn't going to have that safety net of, of subtitles or dialogue or, or, or voiceover or, or even music, because a lot of this film doesn't have music. I mean, And the lack of the close-ups. So much of this film is about denying you those typical traits of identification and the clear window of communication and to understanding characters and narrative and suddenly when that was all stripped away i found it really difficult to get involved it's also an incredibly cold film not just because of it's set in ukraine and obviously we have a very sort of communist coldness to the to the run down buildings and the sterility of the of the of the the boarding house and so on but even the characters themselves are quite difficult to attach to even the the underdog protagonist if we want to call him that isn't exactly entirely likable you know from his gestures from his actions that take place so i I found myself trying to intellectualize the process of watching it while i was watching it and i guess that's what made it hard because i wasn't invested in in the narrative so much and then the gut punch comes along and look i'm not a squeamish Fewer by any stretch. There's probably a couple of films that I've really sort of wanted to look away or, or, or felt the kind of cold sweats coming on. Yeah, this is, this is one of the moments where I actually felt like I want to just press stop and get up and, and walk out of the room and, and in some ways I wished I'd seen this in a cinema. I, I wished I hadn't had the luxury of sitting at home and being able to step up and and, and kind of turn away or, or press pause because I think being in that cinema would have been so much more effective because there's no escape you can't get up or well, you could but uh, you know it's less likely mm. you're going to get up. I guess in hindsight it's not a film I want to rush out and see again but I, I wished I'd seen it under those conditions.
0: We should just specify we all saw the film in private screener links that the um, distributors provided us with because obviously it hasn't started screening yet in the cinema.
2: I watched it in one setting um, and I, I have quite a strong. Um, opinion about about not looking away um, for, for reasons that I can avoid going into. But I, I, I really don't like looking away in a film. I, I feel very strongly about that as a, just personally in terms of my own viewing habits. And the last film I did that in was Cannibal Holocaust. It's been a really long time since I've actually physically held my hands up in front of my eyes like a child. Um, and I love this film for doing that to me. It's such a... Um, a I, I'm speechless, like a, which is not great for radio. But I mean, it's such a powerful film, and it, just you bringing up Thomas, this idea of exclusion and inclusion. I wonder if if I, I wonder if that's a really practical word for me to have used. This idea of exclusion, because I do agree with you. I was really moved by the story, um, and I, I travelled with this film, and I travelled with the characters, and I felt for them. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a better word than exclusion. Maybe it's, a, it's almost like a, 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 a language thing. thing. It's like a language yeah. thing. I don't speak sign... I, I don't read sign language. I can't... I, I felt cut off. It was, it was like a, a lingual experience rather than a, an inclusion or an exclusion. Um, and I love the... Again, I loved the film for that. I loved it for making me feel cut off.
1: But uh, it's, it's smart because it also doesn't give you non-deaf... Um, characters in order to kind of give the audience, oh, hang on, that's someone I can identify mm-hmm. with. That's the moment of English or that's the moment of Ukraine with spoken Ukrainian with, with kind of subtitles. It keeps you in their world the entire time. We never get that reprieve. And I think it's smart in, in doing that. I
2: do think it's worth saying that a lot of this depends, and we haven't really articulated this specifically, a lot of this depends on the cast themselves. We cannot underestimate how incredible these performances are. This is uh, These are non-professional actors. This film, in a lot of ways, reminded me of Gus Van Sant's work with uh, young people around the same age, certainly not children, young people around the same age, um, uh, Paranoid Park and Elephant, uh, which were also non-professional... A non-professional cast and especially this film is just loaded with these long tracking shots, slow tracking shots down corridors which recalled for me so vividly uh, Christopher Doyle's work in particular on Elephant Mm. and I I think that there are probably points of contrast between those two films
0: For sure. Um, That staggers me they're non-professionals and I think the fact that they're all deaf is actually used in really interesting and devastating ways in the narrative too because they can't hear things that we would normally hear and there are moments where you're watching the screen thinking... That's happening a metre away from you. Or, for, Turn around, please. Did God, you forget? Turn around. Did yeah. you forget
2: each time? Because I'm... Why, why aren't you reacting? Yeah, and oh. you think, oh, that's right.
0: That, that's the world this film creates. Uh-huh. So It's not just a stunt. It's not just a, a novelty. And... And... Uh, yeah. Yeah, what, what I really like too is the, 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 the what happened to the protagonist in this film because he is sort of positioned as the underdog hero. Who it's a bit of a taxi driver narrative. He wants to save this girl who's prostituting herself, and what this film goes into very dark places with him as savior becomes her new oppressor. Like he he wants to own her, and we, and some of the worst things that happen to her is a, a result of. Him. So I think this film is also on a very sophisticated and very dark and troubling way, dealing with issues of gender as well.
2: There's yeah. nothing patronising about this film. Well, you can accuse it of many things, but there's not one moment of this that is soft or patronising.
1: No cheap romanticism either. I mean, that's, that's something that's, that's powerful. Just in terms of the ending, which I think is what you were slightly referring to there, and I'm not going to obviously spoil mm. it, I didn't buy it. It didn't wash with me at all well. And and I actually had to rationalise it in my mind as a fantasy sequence because the scene that precipitates it seems... How do I I've got to be careful here? No, no,
0: I think it works on that level. I know what you're going to suggest. You could very much read the final sequence to be a fantasy sequence, like you do with Taxi Driver. Absolutely, because what we, ha- what we see
1: happen to the character in the scene before suggests that there's no real way of the last scene taking place in the manner it does, and I thought that was an interesting point to leave the audience with that perhaps ambiguity.
0: Yeah, it also it gives you that kind of bizarre catharsis too, where you, you, you're very troubled by the fact that you might enjoy the actions, mm. even though the actions are, are horrific.
2: I was relieved for a shock to get me over a previous shock. Yeah. Anything that distracted me from, from that one scene that we all keep hinting at. anything that gets me past that i was fine with
0: yeah this is up there with irreversible but you know it's it's probably not quite as hard as irreversible but um it's getting close yeah okay personally
1: i found it more difficult too actually
0: well the tribe i think listening to us to discuss it will pretty much determine whether you want to see it or or not it's certainly not a film for everybody but some people who are um i don't want to say more adventurous but are open to sort of this far more challenging cinema i think will really adore this this film it's uh screening exclusively at Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Have a look at their website. There's two screenings this coming weekend, and then two the weekend after that. You're listening to Plato's Cave. This is 3RR. three triple R. Three triple R. apart from a handful of screenings at places like the Shadow Electric over summer, the UK film The Riot Club has effectively gone straight to home entertainment here in Australia. It's directed by the Danish filmmaker Lone Scherfig, who I've always admired for the way she combines a lot of stylistic devices associated with light-hearted and whimsical cinema, with themes and ideas that are often quite dark and troubling. Uh, This is probably most prominent in her 2002 film, Wilbur Wants to Kill Himself, a deadpan comedy about family and love that, under the surface, contained a very melancholic examination of mental illness. And in 2009, um, An Education, which we just heard some of the music from, which, on the surface, was a romance film, but underneath was actually a very troubling look at teen sexuality and maybe age-inappropriate relationships. Uh, It's also worth noting that Scherfig's first film, Italian for Beginners which is great, was made under the restraint and dictates of the Dogme 95 movement and yet still manages to be upbeat I think she's the only person who's done a a feel good Dogme film now, The Riot Club, her latest film, is an adaptation of a play titled Posh by Laura Wade, and while the film it didn't feel stagey to me while watching it, discovering after the fact that it did begin life as a play made a lot of sense. Uh, it would certainly explain my main criticism of the film, which I'll get out of the way now, and that's that... Some of the ideas in it are just too explicitly and unnecessarily spoken out loud as dialogue, in a huge contrast to The Tribe. you know, The action on screen in this film and the acting is more than enough to communicate the message of the film. It's about an exclusive club of extremely well-connected and privileged male Oxford University students who are recruiting two new members and getting ready for their big, hedonistic celebration. Uh, One of the new recruits is a guy called Miles... Played by Max Irons, son of Jeremy. Uh, Miles is keen to get the golden ticket that comes with membership, although his romantic attachment to a girl considered lower class and his concern at some of the behaviour on display during the celebration dinner does put him at odds with some of the other club members. Uh, this is in contrast to the other new recruit, a guy called Alistair, who is seething with resentment at living in the shadow of his older brother, he becomes increasingly ruthless over the night in pursuing the ethos of the club, which is to promote their pleasure at the expense of everybody deemed beneath them. So the criticism of class privilege, gender privilege, and even to some degree racial privilege is pretty overt in this film. What I really appreciated is how early in the film it portrays these guys... As obnoxious men, children, clinging on to a pathetic tradition. I don't think we're ever encouraged to vicariously enjoy their exploits. Um, And look, I think for a large part of the film, it's somewhat on on cruise control. The the build-up in their actions is somewhat by... You know, painting by numbers a little bit, it does effectively increase the stakes towards the end, just to portray how destructive these guys are in action and attitude. Uh, and the sting in the tail is that no matter how childish, uh, transparent and out of date these guys are, they do still rule the world and will continue to do so. Um, let's just remember our current Prime Minister went to Oxford University as well. It makes a lot more sense having watched this film about privilege, vandal assholes. I ended up being quite engaged with this film despite the fact that I went to school with the kinds of people who would be right Club members and uh, choosing to spend 107 minutes watching a film about the type of people I tried to avoid for six years didn't feel right at all. Look, there's a couple of points
1: of um, interest, I think, in this film. One is the comparison, which I think has been made extraneously, to The Wolf of Wall Street, mm. particularly in terms of the way in which that film raised similar issues about male power, hedonism, wealth, and, and the way in which the, say, female characters are treated. And I think it's, it's an interesting point of comparison in a number of ways. One is because I think... In Scherfig's film, the satire is so clearly labelled. We know that these guys are pricks. We know that we're not meant to be identifying with these. In in some ways, I think Scorsese plays a far more dangerous game because he, in some ways, wants us to identify with the DiCaprio character and then problematizes it and, and delays that sting until perhaps almost the end of the film. Um, I also wonder, and this is a discussion that frustrates me whenever it's brought up, and the irony is not lost on me that I'm the one bringing it up this time, is that I think the criticism of The Wolf of Wall Street, and this is going to be a slight generalisation, that was negative and said this film is actually celebrating male hedonism and and misogyny and so on, was in part because the film was written and directed by men. And here you have a film about male hedonism, etc., which is written and directed by women. And I wonder whether how much of the discourse surrounding these films is informed by the creative figureheads. And I think that's such a... A strange um, idea, or an essentialist kind of discussion, in many ways, because it suggests that only women can make feminist films, and only men can make kind of misogynist films. So I find that a, a little bit troubling. But I think, I think the point you make, Thomas, about the the social satire being so overt um, in this film is interesting because, in a sense, it gives the audience an easier way into the film. But the one thing I did appreciate about this film at the level of gender politics is that there are a number of points in this film in which women are held up as objects of potential sexual violence. There's probably three or four key occasions. And in most films of this manner, women are used almost as plot points in order to reinforce that these men are bad, and they're victimised, they're brutalised, they're raped... And you know to varying degrees, we, as the audience, we see these moments, and this is something I appreciated about what Sherfeig does is she keeps elevating these moments to the potential, but doesn 't follow through because she makes the point in the sense in the, in the threat in itself, so in a sense, the film doesn 't indulge the kind of the male fantasy of the victimized woman you know, it doesn 't necessarily elevate the women and gives them a kind of sexual agency or power within this scenario, but it doesn 't indulge the fantasy
2: I think the politics of this film is really crucial I think it 's a heavily well, the story around this film, anyway, is is heavily, heavily political. Laura Wade's play that this is based on uh, is called Posh, and it was hugely controversial. It came out just a few months, I think, before the 2010 election. Wade is in interviews. She has said that she had people walking out of the play. She had people coming up to her after performances, screaming at her, what do you have against Atonians?" This was a huge deal when it it was first staged um, and very much the film... Getting made was on the back of the success of uh, of the stage play, and there's an interesting meta level, I guess, of prestige linked to even just that initial stage project, a lot of the actors who were in the stage play went on to greater success afterwards. People like Cat Harrington was in Game of Thrones, Joshua McGuire is in The Hour, David Dawson is in Luther. So Posh was very much considered a, a launchpad for them. In the same way that, uh, for me, I feel that this film is very much a launchpad for Sam Claffin, who was in Hunger Games, he plays Alistair, but very much a launchpad for him. But most of all, Max Irons, who's Milo. Now, as you said, this is Jeremy Irons' son, and I felt that there was a and I may have missed this, you guys might feel differently, but I felt that there was a... Um, can you use irony in relation to Jeremy <laughs> Irons? Is that, is that, is that a Zing, linguistic well no-no? Oh, nice word. I'm Irons sure I could have irony. crafted that a bit more cannily. For a film that is about privilege of family name and wealth, the, the film didn't seem particularly knowing about casting Jeremy Irons' son in the lead, (laughs) that really bugged me. I thought that they could have done something really clever with that and they really didn't run with it and I found that very disappointing. The other thing we haven't mentioned is the Bullingdon Club, which we must flag here. Um, Laura Wade always said, no, 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 it's not specifically about the Bullingdon Club. Everything that I've read about the play and the film has mentioned the Bullingdon Club and I believe that the film's promotional materials have been a bit more relaxed about not not kind of pushing the denial the Bullingdon Club you guys probably already know about um it was a um exactly the same kind of deal a a dining club I believe at Oxford that has run for a very very long time there's a very famous photo from 1987's Bullingdon Club uh which includes David Cameron and Boris Johnson which you can look for online even though of course we're told repeatedly that the Bullingdon Club doesn't exist and that photo doesn't exist so if you google it and you find it you'll actually see that it doesn't exist (laughs) um because that is what politics is. As a critique of the Bullingdon Club specifically, I haven't seen the play but I found that the film a little bit and this is where our opinions probably diverge a little bit Thomas. I found that it verged on offensive actually. I found that it really glamorized these young men just because they're they're all cheekbones and bouffants and and it's all if it's not Marilyn Manson soundtracks that they're trashing dining restaurants to then it may as well be and I think there's a Duran Duran soundtrack it's all this kind of pop rock montage and lots of cheekbones and lots of pretty hairdos. And, I mean, there's a handsome, roguish young man. We don't like them, and their behaviour does get increasingly more horrendous throughout the film. But that that our protagonist is is one of the guys in this group, to me, is, is quite off-putting. And that irony, again, that it's Jeremy Irons' son... But again, if you go back to the that original um, that 1980, not the original, the 1987 photograph of the Bullingdon Club, David and Cameron and David Cameron and Boris Johnson. I don't mean to be unkind, but they were not good-looking men. They were not cheekbones and bouffants. They were tiny potato men from a potato planet. I think it's fair to say there are some
0: fugly guys in the cast, though. Like, I think that there's quite a deliberate reveal where you get introduced to a couple of very nerdy characters who are doing a terrible job at trying to pick up a couple of girls, and then we discover they're in the club, and you realise that it isn't just because of. I think the film makes it clear. I
2: like those characters. I would have liked it to have been more about. Yeah, them. Yeah,
0: sure. I know yeah. Our leads are very much very attractive, beautiful men. Um, I think the film does try to go to pains to show you they're there through privilege only. That they've achieved nothing. These aren't people who have done anything on merit. Um, and yeah. I just had a different response. Maybe because I seriously did go to the kind of school that produces these people. I just found them immediately I hated them with a passion. And I even thought, why am I going to watch a film in the company of these people who I'm still getting therapy about? You know, I just found them so revolting and obnoxious. My my criticism is that it's it's too much, it's too overt.
2: Robert Pattinson was originally meant to be in this film, and that was a real flag. I mean, I Mm. I actually tried to look up and try to find out why he wasn't too busy making amazing films with Cronenberg, I guess. Um, But to me, that was... I mean, if that was the kind of look that they were going for for some of these guys, it it really kind of... I mean, I felt that this was like a, almost like a glorified teen film.
1: Um, it's funny you mentioned Pattinson because I actually thought that the guy who plays Alistair was the one who played Cedric Diggory in the Harry Potter film and got killed, but that was Pattinson. Um, I'm glad you just brought up the, the point about music, and I'm going to be quick here, but I, I thought that was my biggest criticism of the film. The montage destruction sequence when their night of debauchery escalates or crescendos into the moment of violence, it just, it's too easy for the audience to get off on that. And I thought it was such a, a badly constructed... Sequence because it was it was easy to watch and it shouldn't have been that should have been almost silence or it should have been shouldn't have been the kind of playful oh look you know boys
2: will be boys it seemed to be
1: sending the wrong message and it could have hit really hard Mm -hmm. and I
0: don't I think it pulled its punches at that moment I hear you but I I really had a different response I found that sequence really sad and upsetting Um, and I think the camera focused on the fact they weren't just trashing the lobby they were trashing this guy's possessions like you know things that they couldn't just replace with money but um, the the music selection in the film wasn't great and I've played none of the music on the show for a reason. <laughs> I think we'd better get out of here um, before, before we, we trash much. the joint Before we trash the <laughs> joint Into horrible initiations to Jason um, <laughs> Avengers Age of Ultron Is on wide release Through Walt Disney Studios The Tribe will be screening twice this coming weekend And then twice the weekend after At the Australian Centre for the Moving Image Courtesy of Alpha Violet And the Riot Club is available on DVD, Blu-ray And various digital platforms Through Madman Entertainment my name's Thomas Cordwell. I've been joined by Josh Nelson and Alexandra Helen nicholas This has been Plato's Cave. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.